Hello, welcome back to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Uh, we're looking at uh, some of Lovecraft's letters um, drawn from the third volume of the Selected Letters. So we're getting just a, a sampling of letters from uh, this period. Specifically, today will be November to January, 1930 to 31. So the the, the winter of 1930 to 31 will be our, our focus here. Um, a couple really Good letters, particularly one to Frank Belknap Long, will really command our interest. It's it's actually a pretty substantial letter, um, and a few other interesting things. A lot of aftermath of the Quebec trip is still there, and we're reminded just how much that influenced Lovecraft's thinking. I think it was a very um, important event uh, to see what he saw as an as an ancient world that's kind of maintained its culture was something that's really should be in his mind, juxtaposed to kind of the rising machine culture and its kind of uh, rejection of the past that he sees going on in 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 the rest of North America, specifically uh, New England, New York, places like that. So he's been traveling a lot at this time of his life. Uh, we just, of course, also saw the trip he took to the south, another uh, very influential trip for him. But this one seems even more so. The Quebec trip seems even more important, so much so that he even wrote a travel log. And, and he mentions this in a letter to James Ferdinand Morton, how he completed this travel log. Um, um, that's a good letter too, by the way. This one from January 1931, where he talks a lot, quite a lot about race. We haven't seen too much uh, direct commentary on race. We've seen more discussions of civilization and and culture and these kinds of things. But but here we get one directly dealing with with race. So that's a uh, that's significant, I think. So I think it's a good uh, mix of letters here. Um, showing a little bit of a more of a focus on Clark Ashton Smith and August Derleth. Uh, previously, we were getting a lot of letters to Morton and Toldridge. Um, here, we're, we're getting kind of a different mix of, of people. So it'll be a nice, a nice change that way. So anyways, um, let's get started. So uh, we'll start with the five letters he we have in this period to Clark Ashton Smith. Um, so they started talking about travel and and kind of playing with story ideas in the last letter we looked at in the previous episode. And this kind of carries on here, actually for a handful of letters. For th actually, for three letters, they carry on this conversation about kind of brainstorming a try a time travel story. Um, I think it was in the last letter where he talked about the importance of dynamite. Um, that was a really, I think, an important letter. Uh, but, you know, they kind of continue talking about kind of constructing stories and what stories, you know, how stories might be put together. Specifically here, time travel stories. And again, this is uh, maybe reminds us of stories like even The Whisper in Darkness, which has at least the hint of time travel. It suggested that time travel is possible. Shadow of Time is maybe the best uh, example. I think Thing on the Doorstep has time travel of a sort. We get time travel in uh, in the case of Charles Dexter Ward, uh, but in these stories, it's it's not quite the time travel or kind of travel log like like an H.G. Wells story. You know, Lovecraft's always trying to do something else with the the time travel narrative. But anyways, they're playing with this idea back and forth. So first, we got one on November eleventh, nineteen thirty. Um, where he suggests there's some uh, maybe problems with time travel stories. And I think this shows Lovecraft being very careful about how he constructs stories. It's, it's something we know, like in the case of Charles Dexter Ward, he 
consciously made this a part of the story, the fact that he's a fish out of water, right? And often when this happens in stories or movies, the fish out of water becomes part of the plot, but it's something that's kind of easily overcome because it's not really the most interesting thing uh, that the writers are usually trying to go for, but it's something they have to sort of deal with. Um, So here's what he writes about this. The weakness of most tales with this theme is that they do not provide for the recording in history of these inexplicable events in the past, which were caused by the backward time travelings of persons of the present and future. It must be remembered that if a man of 1930 travels back to B.C. 400, the strange phenomenon of his appearance actually occurred in B.C. 400 and must have excited notice whenever it took place, end quote. Now, I do think time travel stories sometimes do this, and it's not, you know possible and we there's many examples of time travel stories actually doing this quite well but apparently lovecraft's not happy with the state of time travel stories at the time um but one thing that's really kind of piques his interest about time travel stories is the idea of finding like a modern man amidst older documents right i think that's just because what lovecraft would do if he was a time traveler is maybe dig through the little documents right and try to find the truth of some historical fact that that you know it's kind of been lost to time um, to document that and then dying in the archives or something which is kind of a could have been an interesting story had he had he written it and in a sense shadow of time is a time travel story about people essentially going back in time to dig into archives right that's the whole point of the the ithians right they're they're not really uh, well they're basically librarians right and they go back in time to collect knowledge um, I think it's uh, Lovecraft's kind of regrets that so much has been lost, I guess, to, to history. And so much of his stories are about unearthing this past, even though in his stories he often wants to abolish it because it's too horrifying or something. It's got that forgetting narrative, but we see in the letters here uh, that he may have been on the side of the seekers um, after all. Uh, then we got uh, the, uh, another letter about a week later uh, to Clark Ashton Smith, November 18th, 1930, where it seems that uh, Clark Ashton Smith suggested some method of, of time travel, and this kind of kept the conversation going. And Lovecraft uh, kind of plays with this a little bit. He gives the, you know, he gives the idea of less vis- visiting the quote-unquote vanished Pacific, which would be wonderful. Again, it's kind of like these would, these would be great stories if he had written them. Um, I just, but he didn't quite get that far. Uh, he connects us to the Necronomicon, and he kind of plays with the idea of maybe uh, the Mad Arab Abdul Hazarad as being sort of a time traveler of sorts and being somehow connected to the past. Um, but his big question here for the time travel story is kind of what becomes before man. Quote, meanwhile, it which came before man still broke sardonically and disquietly on its shelf. Each morning one finds the same dubious suggestions of subtle motion. And for the last fortnight, it has seemed that they are insistently increasing. So, end quote. So th- this, he's actually talking about, I think, science and new discoveries in geology and fossil records and things. That there's just that much. I, I think we forget how recent knowledge about how deep the earth, how, how long history is on earth. The age of the earth was not determined until the 20th century. Um, continental drift was a 20th century discovery. The origins of humans, the out of Africa thesis is a 20th century thesis that really wasn't established, I think, till the 70s or so. Uh, the, you know, when Lovecraft's writing, he's still 
the most common theory out there is, is Central Asian origins of humanity. So, you know, that could be another element of the time travel story. So, uh, you know, a couple interesting letters just dealing with, with time travel. A little thought experiments, right? Um, he writes another letter about a, uh, 10 days later, November 29th, uh, to Clark Ashton Smith, which is more broadly about the traveler's tale, right? The story of exploration and discovery, which, of course, Lovecraft does do. He writes uh, at the Mountains of Madness, which is um, it's a warning story, but it is ultimately a, a story of exploration and, and discovery. Um, even though at the end he kind of comes on the side of abolishing it. Um, but there's a little bit here on just, um, you know, what would, what really would be the experience of someone planted in another world, like Carter on Mars, right? If this really happened, you know, how traumatic, horrifying would this be? And he's, he, again, is picking on other writers, uh, fairly or unfairly. But he says, quote, that one fa the one fatal weakness of nearly all interplanetary tales is that they almost completely ignore the factor of the situation. To my mind, this stupendous wave of emotion, incredulity, lostness, wonder, stark terror, incident to the supreme dislocation of man in memorially fixed background would be so colossal a thing as to dwarf any event which might happen to a celestial traveler. End quote. Um, so, you know, we, we know very well how much Lovecraft was tied to one place, how he experienced New York as kind of being a, a traumatic traveler's adventure, you know, but he spent the whole time pining for New England, right? So he, he imagines the other travelers would do the same thing and be in the same, uh, same situation. Um, so they kind of get off this topic in the next letter, uh, which is... December 25th. This is a really heavily edited letter. It's got the dots at the beginning and the end of the passage, and we're left with only a half a page. So I think there must be some more interesting stuff in the full full letter. Um, I think there's a publication that does has the Clark Ashton Smith letters in full, or at least in less heavily edited format. So it might be worth checking this out. But it's December 25th, so Christmas 1930. And this letter just plays with, with folklore and mythology, and particularly Lovecraft's mythology. And he, of course, sees Clark Sheston Smith as being someone who's kind of feeding this mythology in his own way, in his own writing, and in his artistic work. So he loves to kind of uh, just uh, free associate. And we're going to see another example of free association in this set of letters in a, in a letter to, to Morton. So, so it's a bit hard to read, but it's, it's a lot of fun uh, to see him do that. Then um, January 30th, or January, sorry, just January 1931. We don't have a specific date. Um, he writes again to Clark Ashton Smith. These are all short little letters. This one seems not to be edited, but it's quite short. So it's more of a note. And it deals with a totally different topic. Uh, he's basically talking about the explosion of specialized fiction magazines. And if you followed any kind of the science fiction or or genre fiction of the early 20th century, you know about all these magazines, right? And some survived only for a few issues, some survived for, for years or even decades, but there was a lot of turnover in these and a lot and just a lot of different specialized genre magazines, train stories, Wild West stories, crime stories, 
weird ta- weird tales is the kind of place for things that didn't fit in other stories. You got, of course, the science fiction magazines. And based on this and some other letters, we get the sense that Lovecraft is a little bit anxious about kind of the overall quality. He just thinks a lot of bad writings getting published because of the the, the, the flooding of the market of in in specialized he calls them specialized fiction magazines so he kind of suggests their quality is going down quote but i guess they represent just about the nadir of printed material if not quite the lowest and most exhaustively contemptible form of human activity wouldn't say that's writing for these and for the mcfadden regs is an art but i wouldn't call it an exact science a very genuine instance of the practical business application of complex and subtle psychological principles in reaching the public the reverse of complex or subtle end quote so he's, he's just not too, too happy with the quality of what he's seen out there. So that's it. That's what he wrote to Clark Ashton Smith in this time period. So I, I think the time travel stuff is, is actually a rather fascinating um, uh, thought experiment, just because it seems there could have been a story there that, that never really got written. I, I do think there's hints of it in Shadow of Time. But not really. I mean, that's not the main point. It's, I mean, the real heart of it is like this, this kind of body, your, your body being taken over, right? Right. Again, that's a, that's a theme that's come up a lot in Lovecraft. So that's why people kind of focus on that. But there is this element of time travel librarian kind of thing, which is, which I think is a lot of fun. It's, it's an aspect of the story I really like. All right. So that's all about Smith. Uh, next, we have five letters to August Derleth. I think this is the most we've seen in a, in an episode. Usually, there's been just one or I think you know one or two letters to Derleth in a in a in a period of time. Here we have five uh, in pretty quick succession, actually. Five letters in just you know two two months or so, um, dealing with a variety of different things. So there's nothing really common uh, about these these letters, except that they're all by Lovecraft, I guess. Um, but worth uh, checking out. Um, so the first of these, I can find it, November 21st, 1930, is maybe one of the more meatier ones. It deals with uh, cosmic thinking and kind of co- his vision of cosmic horror once again. Um, and he just thinks, again, there's not many people who really can dig it or fully understand it or appreciate it. So he's like, I'm, I, you know, we're, we're part of the special group that can think cosmically about things. Most people can't, which is why it's not very popular in art. He says, some people, a very few perhaps, are naturally cosmic outlook, just as others are naturally of and for the earth. I myself less exclusively cosmic than Clark Ashton and Wandry in that I recognize the impossibility of any correlation of the individual and the universal without the immediate visible world as a background, end quote. So this is actually an important quote because it, it kind of gets to his whole theory of culture and civilization, right? Because his big argument seems to be if the universe is indifferent to us, we need this world as our grounding. Because if we're lost at sea, we at least need to be on a boat. If without that, we're just, we're, we're, we're just floating in the sea. And we're doomed in that case. If we have a boat, though, we can at least understand our place in this cosmos a little bit, right? And it's not adequate. It's not solving the real problem, but it lets us live our lives without going too nuts. So he says that he's actually more um, conservative than some of the other writers. Um, he talks a bit about music. In fact, he brings up music a few times in, in these letters to Derleth. 
uh, I guess twice, um, where he's kind of down on his own musical ability and, and interest in music. But he says something really bizarre here, um, which just shows you he, he doesn't think much about music. And despite having read written, written the music of Eric Zahn, right, which plays, I think, with modernist musical conventions in a way, it's... You know, he doesn't say too much about it. He's more interested in, like, visual art. He's more of a visual thinker, and he says that somewhere in one of these letters, that he is, in fact, a visual learner or, or someone who thinks visually. And we, I guess you get that sense when you read his stories. But he says, he only likes music through association, not intrinsically. Quote, for me, Tip, Tipperney or Wilbichani has infinitely more emotional appeal than any creation of Leeds, Beethoven, or Wagner. But at least I do not fall into the Philistine's usual pitfall of expressing contempt for an art which I cannot understand, end quote. So that's a fair enough position. He's saying, I don't really get a lot of music, but I'm not saying it's bad. I just don't get it. But his to say Rule Britannia, now here I'm going to be a little pompous, to say Rule Britannia is better music than you know the vast majority of Beethoven or Wagner is just a stupid thing to say. Um, but, you know... Whatever he seems, let's take him take his word for it that he's not that interested in music. Now, this letter also gets into a conversation about the burden of consciousness, which I think ties back to cosmic horror, in a way, in the, the just the the vastness of the universe. That us being conscious in this is is a problem. It's it's the whole reason it is a problematic. If we were just mindless creatures who never we're curious about our place in the world, it wouldn't be a big issue, right? What is anything is a question only conscious people can have and therefore is a problem that, that needs to be explored. So anyways, that's all in one letter uh, to Derleth. Uh, about a month later, we get a letter written on December 25th um, to Derleth. And if you've been following this podcast, especially the last four episodes, there's nothing really new in here. He's just kind of reporting it to a different audience but there's some good stuff in here so this is written the same day he wrote that letter to clark ashton smith the one that's just playing with mythology this one um we see him kind of repeating himself um, from what he said to other people but you know he talks about the the solitude of the individual uh his fondness for landscapes and his house landscapes kind of give people that boat in this uh kind of cosmic universal indifference of, of humanity and you know that's even that's even a deeper problem than for the individual right so into this comes kind of culture and he says some interesting things here about culture and even hints a little bit at race here it's not really about race directly but what it's really getting at is is how people sort of have this cultural dna worked into them not genetic really but cultural right it's, it's the culture we were raised in and therefore beauty is totally subjective by culture right it's not subjective individual to individual it can be and certainly maybe that's a part of the problem with modernism in this view is you get just you're just to add more subjectivity into a this indifferent universe just makes things worse um for us but Here's what he writes. I'll, I'll just read this passage because it's kind of good. Uh, it would be foolish to carry the theory of individuality so far as to imply that certain sites and impressions have not a special group significance as well as a special individual significance. We know as a matter of common sense that if we confront four individuals, two Americans and two Chinese, 
With any given object or impression, apart from the barest of universals, we shall not have four equally different reactions. A grouping of reactions is determined by community or heritage will certainly take place. So that although there will indeed be four separate responses, those responses will not be equidistant from one another, but they'll tend to group themselves into American and Chinese reactions. So he gives the example then if you go to a Gothic cathedral with two Americans, and he, and he, meant, he picks a, a European thing when talking about two Americans. So it's significant that he does this. He doesn't say like New York City or, or a Puritan New England town. He says a Gothic cathedral. He says Americans will have a deeper emotional connection to that than the Chinese. And the Chinese cannot share that same emotional linkage. He says it would, be there, it would therefore be silly of me to deem myself simply an individual equidistant from all other individuals. Clearly I'm hitched on the cosmos not as an individual unit but as a Teuton Celt with large emotional areas that can be shared with Teutons and Celts but not with others. End quote. So yeah, it's about race ultimately, but it's really a, it's it's kind of a cultural memory that uh, endures in that can be reflected in art and in landscapes, architecture. Of course, he picks architecture, right? We're not surprised to see that. All right. Um, then a week later, December thirty first, we have a another letter to uh, to August Derleth. Uh, which is about his own failure at music lessons. He kind of self-deprecates a little bit, mentioning how he wasn't that good at the violin and that he lacked musical talent. So this seems to be a carry-on from the previous letter where he talked about his lack of uh, music appreciation ability. He says even farther here that he's, you know, he doesn't even have the ability to play music. And I think this is the letter where he says he's more of a visual, a visual learner or a, he has more of a deep emotional connection to visuals and to words than to music. Um, he says, had jazz bands been known in at that remote area, I would have certainly have qualified as an ideal gentleman utility man capable of working rattles, cowbells, and everything that two hands, two feet, or one mouth could handle, end quote. And I think here he's just being honest. Like if I had been raised in a different setting, in a different family, with a different, you know, exposed to different things, I might have been a good musician. It's just not the hand I was dealt, which is, I think, fair enough. So just personal. The next letter to August Erleth, January 16th, is also quite personal. And I, I had a lot of fun with this letter because it's when you when you read about like Lovecraft's financial situation, how he money trickled in through revisions, once in a while would sell a story and get a few hundred bucks for it. He got robbed by astounding in the sale of at the Mountains of Madness in the last year of his life. He writes it around this time, but it's not it's not published for like five, six years. And he's kind of robbed uh, there. So how did he survive and for these trips and everything? Well, it seems he just lived very modestly, something I can appreciate because I'm in the same situation. I'm here in China, uh, living my life just to save money, right? To you know, kind of prepare for the next, my future plans. And I want, you know, there's no reason for me to spend money in a place I'm not going to stay. So I know all about living modestly and frugally and all that. And here we see Lovecraft go into a lot of detail, actually, about his frugal living, like how he picks his meals, how much he budgets each week. I think he said $15 a week or some, some amount. He goes on quite a lot about different um, prices. Yeah, 15 per week is his budget. Uh, 
One learns, too, how to make public libraries serve instead of the indiscriminate book buying. $15 a week will float any man of sense in a very tolerable way, unquote. which I kind of agree with. I, see, I talk to my coworkers sometimes who like spend, they might actually spend up to 10 times what I spend you know, in a week. I just don't get it. You know, it's so cheap to live in China, especially when your rent's being paid by the by the bosses. So, not much here thematically, but it's a personal window into Lovecraft's finances. It's got some fun. Um, and then the final letter to August Derleth is dated January twenty third, and this one uh, again doesn't say a whole lot. It's quite short. It's edited. It's got the dots. Um, I don't know what the editors did here because sometimes it's like four dots. Here it's like 10 dots. I don't know if that means a lot's been edited out instead of a little, I guess. That's kind of how I read it. But um, So it seems it's part of a longer letter. But he says, um, where I wrote down some things. Yeah, he's just, uh, he talks about his imagination and how he experiences all kinds of interesting things through his imagination. We know about his vivid imagination and dreams and how he's able to create stories based on dreams and remembers uh, certainly the uh, the Randolph Carter story um, Nyla Othiptep is based on a dream we got uh, the very old folks which was a dream story and we presumed many other ideas came to Lovecraft through dreams um, but he says this doesn't really mean there's anything supernatural he says quote as for God there is, of course, no theoretical barrier to existence of a cosmic intelligence, yet absolutely nothing indicates such a thing. On the contrary, the notion never arises except through traditional suggestions based on mythical perceptions of primitive man. So he takes the classical atheist argument that uh, there's no evidence for God and therefore shouldn't um, think too much about it. So anyways, that's uh, all these letters, the Clark Ashton Smith, Derleth selections we have here. They're all pretty short, to the point, but they got some fascinating stuff in them. Um, and now we're going to jump to what's a much longer and more substantial letter, which is one he wrote to Frank Belknap Long on November 22nd. Uh, at least that's when he'll send out. He probably started writing it earlier than that, which deals with a whole lot of things. It's... Um, So what it comes down to basically is modernity and knowledge, uh, science and uncertainty. So, uh, and he goes on for how long is this? I think it's, I mean, it's not the long, we're going to see a longer letter tomorrow, actually, or not tomorrow in the next episode. Yeah, this one's 10, 10, 12 pages or so. There's a much longer one that's like 50 pages, um, which we'll see in the, in the very next episode. Um, but this one still is pretty good. It's I think it's the longest in this in this period. Uh, he dates at 1730, which is uh, something he sometimes does. So it's November 22nd, 1730. Actually, it's 1930, but he just can't escape the 18th century. So in these little cute ways, he'll throw that in. Um, so here's the thing. So kind of the Enlightenment worldview is that saying knowledge makes us powerful, right? That's knowledge is power. That's, I think, a nice way to sum up a lot of Enlightenment philosophy. This idea that the more we know, the more we can manipulate the world around us, improve harvests, make progress, you know, make a better government, right? And of course, positivism 
builds on this and says we can improve society through policies that are derived at scientifically. All right. So what's Lovecraft's view on this? Well, I think he's coming at this kind of with, from the perspective of modern scientific discoveries, which seem to confuse everything, right? So he's saying knowledge isn't, is, is not intrinsically making us more powerful, right? The, the world's just too under, not, we can't understand it. He writes, these mathematicians are in themselves just as powerless as the rankest layman to make any definite pronouncement insomuch as they have no means of testing the operations of their own mental processes and the steps whereby they reach their tentative conclusions. For this uh, later testing, the aid of the trained psychologists, anthropologists, and biologists is absolutely essential. So that in truth, the significant probing of the unknown must necess necessarily consist of teamwork with both mathematicians and psychologists, end quote. So there is some hope that the, the so way to solve this problem is better science, right? more interdisciplinary explorations um but it's still we're still never going to really be able to get at very clear truth it seems so that's part of what he gets into in this letter and it's all rooted into the, our cosmos and our relation to it and ultimately to the limits of knowledge uh, he writes for instance uh with these new discoveries what we know about the universe um Obviously, we must redraw our basic guess at what is and what isn't, refusing to be influenced by our views of 1900, just as res uh, resultly as we refuse to be influenced by our views of 1880 or 1850 or 1800 or 1650 or 1300 or 500 or BC 4450. But we must be no more eager and predisposed to find a difference than we are eager and predisposed to find a similarity. We must not seek to cater to any wish or loyalty or any other emotional consideration apart from the instinct of pure curiosity. End quote. So he's skeptical here of how much knowledge can actually advance, right? And we shouldn't just presume we know more than people in the past um, because everything's been kind of mixed up. I think that's what it comes down to. Everything's been so mixed up that we, we lose our grounding, for better or for worse. Um, he then gets into a nice little aside here about older philosophies and their views of the cosmos, which is actually kind of good and something I think... I would like to see Lovecraft write a little bit more about. He ends up kind of getting diverted by his own mythologies by the end of this conversation, but he talks about like Lao Tzu, Mohammed, early Christians, Zoroastrianism, even African like um, indigenous religions to say like these all have views of the cosmos too. And this then he just jumps to like, why not the yellow sign or, or Dunsany's Pania or Tyndalus? Or Long's own, you know, Long wrote the, the Hound of Tyndalus stuff by this point. Um, but so I don't know if he needed that aside. I think I'd rather see him really actually engage these other traditions a little bit more. Because I, I do think there's probably a lot of more parallel between his own vision of this indifferent cosmos and, and somewhat of these other traditions, which he, at the end of the day, doesn't respect enough to actually investigate. He just kind of name drops them. Maybe investigate them, I don't know. I don't see that much evidence that he get, he does much beyond the superficial for some of these other traditions. Um, we get here a lot about new science of time, too, something really Lovecraft's on his mind, which comes out of new discoveries in geology, about the age of the Earth and tectonic uh, shifts and, and all that. Um, you know, remember just even how new Darwin was at the time. So Darwin's origin of species is, what, 1860? 
And this really doesn't dominate biology till the end of the 19th century, right? And social Darwinism is, is the end of the 19th century. Uh, early 20th century scientific racism just so Lovecraft's kind of living in these this period where everything's being sort of rewritten in terms of science not just the Heisenberg you know Planck stuff or Einstein stuff would you just talk about or not just the Freudian stuff about the subconscious even just on you know in biology and geology there's this uh, as Lovecraft's growing up there's a new concept about about time right that the same kind of depths of time there is in the in astronomy right exists for our own planet which of course opens up so many creative opportunities for for lovecraft um and he then he kind of moves on to talking about writing and he says we need to face reality and then he praises writers who do this so i i, I kind of really appreciate this letter for its uh as a window into how he's thinking about science it's it's quite good anything else here I mean, there's quite a lot, but I don't want to bore you too much. I think it's a letter to check out. Um, I think he gets a little bit too distracted by his own work in mythology, and that's something he does when he writes long, too, because they're both kind of in that weird fiction stuff. Uh, the kind of same way his letters to Clark Ashton Smith and to a less, lesser degree, Durlath, get sidetracked by a little bit of playfulness here. Um, this to be broken out into a real essay would have been a nice... Uh, convert, you know, a nice contribution, I think. So anyways, that's uh, the one letter we have to Frank Bill Knapp Long in this um, period. Um, so next we have uh, three to Elizabeth Tolbridge. Um, again, there's not really a common theme here. Before we could kind of find common themes in his letters to her. But these three are a little bit more random. But they're good. They're, they're worth checking out. The first is is nice because he takes, he talks about Sino-Japanese poetry, which already is a bit like I think anyone's hearing that now and who, who knows anything about East Asian poetry would cringe at that, right? Yeah, the Japanese used Chinese for a while as their main writing, but it didn't stick. They, they had their own writing system that, for, that worked better for poetry anyways, because it's based on Japanese sounds, right? And Chinese characters came in and had to be grafted to Japanese sounds. And to some degree, that's still, there's still that kind of mixed element. But if you go back to like the Heian period of Japan, there was the fad for Chinese writing and Confucianism. And there was a reaction to poets who wanted to write in, you know, in more indigenous Japanese writing. The result is a hybrid, of course, at least in writing. But poetry is about sound, right? And it's, it's, I wonder if the, I'm thinking about music suddenly, because music is about sound, and poetry is kind of taking language, sounds that humans create, giving it some musical characteristics, I suppose, exploring the beauty of a, of, of a spoken language. I don't know. I, don't want to, I shouldn't think too much about it. Uh, but, frankly, he doesn't have that much background in Asian poetry to really judge him too much. He's just writing a letter, after all, uh, not for public consumption. Um, he does, uh, where he seems to get a lot of this from is Lafcadio Hearn. If you don't know about Lafcadio Hearn, he's a guy I really want to do a series on when I get his volume. Library of America published one volume of his writings. He wrote, they probably could publish more. Uh, I think there's enough other stuff that probably could make a second volume, although I'm not sure. Uh, he's lived in the Caribbean for a time and he wrote a lot of interesting travel logs of the Caribbean and he spent time in Asia. He, I think he's buried in Japan, even though he's an American. 
but he's got like Greek ancestry. He may have been born in Greece, became an American, and then went to Asia. He's really awesome in, in kind of his global travels and how much he documented this. But I think he's most famous for translating Chinese and Japanese ghost stories into, into English and making that available. And some poetry, too. So kind of like how Ezra Pound also was doing that. Um, again, I, haven't, I know he translated some Chinese poetry. But uh, Lafcadio Hearn did, uh, for sure. And he talks here a little bit about haiku and stuff. But there's a little bit of, of, of a nice acknowledgement of the contribution of Asian um, poets. But he, he ultimately says it's his own tradition, right? But he connects. His error here is connecting Sino and Japanese poetry as one tradition, which it's not. It's really two very separate traditions. Japanese and Chinese uh, spoken languages have no connection, right? They're entirely different language families. Um, Written language has some overlaps, but that's because of historical interconnections between Japan and China, you know, a couple, like, 1,500 years ago or something. Anyways, enough on that. Uh, so one day later, November 24th, he wrote another letter to her. Now, I don't know how this works. Like, he, did he write this letter and then got a response from Tolbridge from a previous letter, and then he wrote a response and sent it out the next day? Or, you know, was this going to be one long letter he wrote, but he ended up sending out the first one and later. I don't know what was in his mind, but he, he sent out in two days two letters to Tolbridge. Um, this one deals with entirely different topics, though, uh, suggesting he's responding to something different. And here he talks about, again, cosmos, the cosmos and the, the indifference of humanity, the negligibility of the human atom therein. It's a quote directly from the, from the letter. It's a nice one. Um, and ultimately subjectivity of, of human beings in this, in this cosmos. Kind of back to the thing about the conversation he had with August or Leth about individualization and, and how we are limited as individuals in experiencing, you know, in trying to make sense of the world around us. And then there's a conversation here about the Nobel, Nobel Prize. Let's see where it is. No, actually, this is just a mess up of my notes. He actually, in the letter about Asian poetry is when he talked about the Nobel Prize. So I believe this is the year Sinclair Lewis got the Nobel Prize uh, for Aerosmith. No, sorry, I think he got the Pulitzer Prize for Aerosmith in 25. But later on, he got the Nobel Prize for literature. The Nobel Prize is more about your whole career, right? It's not just one work. But the Pulitzer is. So uh, he, he won it. And I think Lovecraft's a little indifferent. He just says, I'd have picked Dreiser, while others would have, may have chosen O'Neill, Cabell, Cather, even Wilder. Lewis is more a man of ideas than aesthetics. And his novels are sound in craftsmanship, even if possessed of an ulterior intellectual purpose. He has punctuated the pitfall shams and inanities of conventional American life as few others have, end quote. What this tells me is he definitely read Lewis. He don't, at least he's aware, or maybe he just heard from media accounts about him, but it sounds like he's read Lewis enough to be able to judge him as not really an artist, as a craftsman, but someone who's really good at this satirical uh, approach to American life. And I, I'm only dwelling on this because I did a series on Sinclair Lewis looking at Aerosmith and Elmer Gantry and, and Dogsworth um, a few months ago on my, on my main uh, podcast series. So, uh, yeah. 
And then we got uh, a third letter to Elizabeth Tolbridge on December 20th, which is about Einstein, um, mostly. He talks about this guy Chesterton who gave a lecture. And he kind of says, well, he's nice enough, but don't listen to him. And they talk a little bit more about the, I think, the Nobel Prize. He says, you would probably like Wilder's Bridge, something I haven't read. Uh, which is clever, though overrated. I admire Sinclair Lewis intensely, for he has the artist's capacity to apply appropriate emotions to the object he treats. Um, I agree with Lewis thoroughly, and I'm somewhat bored by his spirit of propaganda and by the just journalistic commonplaces of his life. So I think Elizabeth Tolbridge must have confronted him on his attitudes towards these writers, and he kind of says, "I, you know, I love the guy, but he's just too." Political. I thought what you've seen is too political uh, and too, too interesting contemporary American foibles to be a great artist. But uh, after this, he gets into this discussion about Einstein and how important he thinks Einstein is in, in this creating a new relationship between human beings and the universe. So I think it's not an uncommon idea. Um, certainly, it's something that Lovecraft was thinking a lot about. So, uh, that's, that's the letters to Tolbridge. They're, they're a good set. Um, so next we have three letters to Wilford Branch uh, Tallman. I think I didn't say much about Tallman last time because I think he came up last time and I didn't mention too much about him. He was someone Lovecraft uh, met in New York. He was one of that New York circle of friends. Um, and they worked together on, on Two Black Bottles. I think that's the only story they work together on. So, uh, you know, he, that's who he is anyways. Um, so we have uh, the first letter here is December 10th, which is about travel, ancient travel. Let me find it. Sorry. Here it is. Um, Oh, first this is, talks about the decline of weird tales. He calls it the weird tales retransmits. And I don't know how much of this, I, I, I don't know about the history of weird tales well enough to talk about it, how we dealt with the Great Depression. But I wouldn't be surprised if there was a retrenchment with just economic necessity. Um, and he says, oh, too bad. I hope it isn't merely the prelude to failure. All serials will be cut out in view of the 90-day waits. And my whisper will appear in one issue as a complete novelette about as long a thing as I ever carried at once, end quote. Which, actually, it might be true that's the longest thing he published at that point. He, you know, Case of Charles Dexter Ward and um, Dream Quest of Unknown Death were longer, but not published. Um, so he's, there's a little bit of concern here about that. But um, mostly he's thinking about antiquarian travel. So I think this builds off of the stuff he was talking about with Clark Ashton Smith. Um, so, and then he talks a little bit about uh, some other travels that he did. So, um, now the next one's fun. The next one is January 1931, which is just a short little note. It's like a note card almost, half a page at most. And he basically talks about cleaning his room, which is fun. At least that's what I wrote down in my notes. So basically, he's going through his files. Um, 
He says, you would not call this state coherent at all, for it merely consists of a rough dumping of certain basic classes, such as astronomy, archaeology, providence, etc., etc., into some 20 or so boxes or envelopes. But it's all the classification I'll bother with. It's a relief to have to circumambient cluttered, cluttering a bit abated. End quote. So literally it's about him cleaning his room and cleaning his papers, getting his papers in order, which is something we all have to do from time to time. Um, now, the January 21st letter, the third and final one that I want to talk about here, it's, it's we only got three tall men. It's also quite short. And this one's about typing. And you know, he always complains about typing. It's something, if you read enough of his letters, you, you get a lot of examples of him just complaining about having to type letters. Um, and this one's no exception. He also talks a little bit about the future of weird tales. So... Uh, a little bit of a follow-up on there, but not too much here in these three letters to Talman, more mundane stuff. Um, the next two, though, these are to uh, James Ferdinand Morton. Now, these are a little bit more substantial because they're, as they almost all his letters to Morton tend to be pretty, if not, they're all, if they're all epic. They're all really interesting. And I think because Morton was such a foil to Lovecraft in terms of ideas, Morton being an anarchist and a universalist and an anti-racist and, and Lovecraft being Lovecraft, right? Being what he is. Um, but they, they seem to really enjoy their conversations with each other and they tease each other, it seems. At least Lovecraft is teasing Morton quite often. Okay, so the first of these is, okay, it's January, January 3rd. Sorry, I didn't write down my notes. January 3rd, 1931. His second letter would be about two weeks later, January 18th. And they do some similar things. They both talk about Quebec. He talks about working on his his travel log of, of Quebec. He says he's writing it. It's going to be like, he says he's, worked, he's done some 65 pages on it. He's on page 65. And his next letter is going to say he's done with it. And it's like 130 pages or something. Um, now, where he starts out going on is he does this like free association. He calls it an endless chain of fantasy. He says endless chains of fantasy can form themselves even around a spoon. And then he takes the word spoon and he free associates silver to Pewart, to Paul Revere, silver mines, Mexico, buried silver plates, pirates, shilling, argentum, apropurius, fiden of Aegean, on and on for three whole pages. And there's literally hundreds of terms that he connects in in free association and it would like a psychologist could have a lot of fun i guess breaking down where he goes with these ideas sometimes it seems it's a leap uh like from grover cleveland to the yellow book um to edgar Allan poe's introduction to murders in the room work those are just three terms that are connected but he does this and it's kind of an experiment in correlative imagination. I think that's his term. I think that's what he calls it here. And, you know, I think we've all experimented with this to some degree. So it's, it's a nice thing to have. He's got little pictures here as part of his free association. But the heart of this letter, and it goes on for another eight pages, I want to say, eight, nine pages after this free association experiment, on the quote-unquote Negro problem, basically, specifically the issue of can races coexist. It says, quote, now the trickiest catch in the Negro problem is the fact that it is really twofold. The black is vastly inferior. There could be no question of this among contemporaries and unsentimental biologists, eminent Europeans, for whom prejudice problem does not exist, end quote. So that's all laughable and nonsense, but it's, it's whatever you're saying. Um, Anyways, it's, he, 
he ends up getting into this question of race mixing. So he kind of, instead of really justifying what he just said here, and he said two things. One, he says, black people are inferior to whites. And second, he says, no unsentimental biologist disagrees with that. And I think neither of those things are are true, right? He's just making it up. Um, He says, um, now, of course, mostly when he talks about this, he covers saying, well, even if the races are equal, they shouldn't coexist because their cultures are so different, right? Back to the kind of the, the Chinese and the Americans looking at the Gothic cathedral. There's just too much of a gap between them for any kind of common ground. Um, he says, even if the Negro were the white man's equal, for the simple fact is the two widely dissimilar races, whether equal or not, cannot peacefully coexist in the same territory until they are either uniformly mongrelized or cast in folkways of permanent and traditional personal aloofness. I don't know if there's only two cases, but uh, only two options, but that's what he gives here. So ultimately, he ends up going on about race mixing here and make, trying to make an argument about race mixing. Uh, quote saying, I think the modern America is pretty well on its guard, at least against race and cultural mongrelization. So as much as he condemns modern America for its kind of moving towards machine culture and its kind of barbarism, he says, oh, at least they're right in, in segregation. So this is one of the more really, truly odious, problematic letters that, that Lovecraft ever wrote, at least that I come across. I mean, so there's some of the stuff early on was pretty nasty, but at least as far as the selected letters are concerned, this is one of the worst because he, he, he rarely talks to this directly about, about race, at least in what we get in the selected letters. And I, you know, I'm acknowledging that these are edited after the fact by people who are fond of Lovecraft. Right? And may have been, and did engage, certainly engage in some cho- word choice editing, right? Like I heard the N-word was taken out of some of these letters and replaced with something like Negro. Maybe that happened in this very letter. I don't know. So he says, basically, he's kind of playing around with this idea, though, of the future of race in America. And he suggests maybe Quebec uh, might have a role in the future saying culturally geographically and economically we belong with the dominion of canada as an extension of the english-speaking maritime provinces we need canada as a buttress for our own threatened and invaded institutions and canada needs us for a thousand economic reasons end quote so he thinks about canada maybe this is back to his fascination with quebec but i don't know if he was not if he hadn't gone to quebec and hadn't been working on this Travel log. I wonder if he would have said this this explicitly that Canada will save us from mongrelization, but that's sort of what he says here. So, this is a pretty unfortunate letter, um, in many many ways. But I think we have to read it, and I think you should uh, probably look at it if you want to grapple with Lovecraft's racism in a way that's uh, you know by going beyond the stories and getting into his letters. This is a good one to go into. Um, so the next one we have to Morton, I'm sorry, I'm kind of skipping over some of this longer letter because again, I'm, I'm kind of hitting the hour mo- mo- point. Um, but January 18th, 1930, January 18th, 1931 is the next one. So this is just a couple weeks later, uh, covers a lot of the same ground. It, it has the Quebec travelogue discussion. He says he's, he's finished it. He even got this introduction, uh, or this kind of idea of a title for it 
And he even goes into a free association again, this time only for one page. But it's a... Uh, Yeah, he just does it for one page here, but he redoes it. Um, but much of this is about tradition and socialism. And we know he doesn't think much of socialism. And I engaged in this before that I think sometimes he's a bit misguided about, about socialism. But he certainly thinks it's... Um, he thinks we're moving towards... I think he thinks machine culture is moving towards some type of socialism, right? He says, for instance, ethical ideals demand socialism on poetical cosmic grounds involving some mythical linkage of individuals to one another and to the universe, while hard fact realism is gradually yielding to socialism because that is the only mechanical adjustment of forces which will save our culture, fostering stratified society in the face of the growing revolutionary pressure from increasingly desperate undermen whose mechanization is gradually forcing into unemployment and starvation. We shall have to pension these undermen by paying them good wages for short hour work, which is not needed at all. That is, we shall have to organize our governing financial groups in such a way that they'll have to disgorge some of their surplus money and carry on with less profit than they could secure under an unsupervised system. And this will not be done because anyone loves the rabble or because anyone thinks the rabble has any mystical right to things that it's powerless to seize. It will be done because the rabble is no longer powerless, but strong and desperate enough to overturn society and set up a communistic barbarism, unless soothed with the sop of concessions, end quote. Now, 1931, so this is still before Roosevelt, before the New Deal, so he's not engaging with New Deal ideas and policies, but you know, I guess a more cynical reading of the New Deal is kind of similar to what Lovecraft's saying here, is that you have a growing, powerful working class that really is a threat to not just capitalism, but for Lovecraft, our whole culture, right? To basically usher in a, a fully mechanized, industrialized barbarism. And therefore, some kind of socialism could, to appease them, is maybe necessary, right? So it's, it's, he's going to talk more about this in future letters. It's going to be a major theme of, like, you see it a lot in the fourth volume with the selected letters. It's a lot of talking about, like, the New Deal stuff and... Um, how to deal with the economic crisis of the time and rising fascism. And, and he gets much more political and, and contemporary in some of his political ideas. And I think it's a fascinating aspect of those later letters. But that's not the only thing he talks about here. He also talks about idealism and foreign, foreign policy and picks on Wilson, calling him Woody Wilson's uh, for just being kind of ridiculous in his optimism and this idea of kind of a universal world without war through institutions and rights and mutual respect and all this he thinks that's kind of silly uh he th he's basically a realist he's also makes fun of pacifism here as being a dead end um gets a little bit but into civilizational borders as well so a lot of great stuff in this letter it's it's a pretty strong one uh gets into racial issues as well so it's a really really powerful letter and instead of going through line by line here I just recommend this one, January 18th. But let me give you one taste where he kind of does start to see, because he, he starts out going, he's, he talks about the necessity of some kind of degree of socialism. And then he kind of takes that same hard-headed attitude that of realism to foreign policy. And then you got, of course, this uh, interconnected world and, and growing crisis in the world with the depression and the rise of fascism and all that. 
So where's all this go? And he concludes this. He says, the plain honest fact is that no individuals and groups can live harmoniously together as long as some members are moved by a scale of feeling standards and environment responses radically different from the natural scale of other members. Living side by side with people whose natural impulses and criteria differ wildly from ours gets in time to be an unendurable nightmare. And then he gives different examples of this, saying even some pretty creepy stuff about, he says, quote, quote, well, we think Chinese, he doesn't use the word Chinese, you know what he uses, are slimy jabberers, Spaniards oily, sentimental, treacherous, backward, and Jews cringy. But he kind of says they think the same thing of us. They think our, like the Chinese think our voices are raucous, our odors nauseous, and our white skins and long noses leprously repulsive. So there's just a mutual, not even a cultural dislike or an intellectual or ideological dislike, just like a physical disgust with them. So this also, like his previous letter where he kind of sees race in these terms, American race relations in these terms, he's seeing here global politics in terms of really racial categories. And then he stops himself and says, it's getting damn hard to stop arguing. It's like he, he kind of lost himself in, in his conversation. He kind of, it's almost like he wrote this, this is like the drunken tweets or something. Um, not that he drinks, but it, you kind of get the sense he, he kind of lost himself for a while in this, in this letter and kind of apologizes almost, but then he kind of continues on going into this. So it's, he gets a little bit into this, that, that's not so much difference, or it's not so much uh, inferiority as difference, but there's definitely a sense here that he sees other cultures uh, as distasteful as he just imagines they see us. I think that's Lovecraft's imagination, maybe running away with him a little bit. And imagining, like, if I see the Chinese this way, they must see me just as horribly. I mean, that's a pretty unfortunate way to look at the world, I guess. But anyways, these two letters to Morton are both really, really good. So there's January 3rd and January 18, 1931. Um, last one, last letter. We're down to the last one. It's to Maurice Moe. Um, the date for this is January 18th. Is that the, that's the same date he wrote that long letter to Morton. Must have just uh, been at his desk all day. Um, now, the letter to Moe... It's, a little, it's still. It's also a long one, four pages in the in the book. Um, he talks mostly here about art and censorship, and he talks about vulgar art, and he actually comes out kind of in favor of some sort of censorship, because he does think some art is just um, ugly and bad. He says there is some ugliness that ought to be abolished by laws in the interest of the good life. Down with French roofs and. Imitation Nordic Norman Gothic. Keep the children from the degrading contamination of scroll scraw porch trimmings and octagonal cupolas and Richardsonian quasi Romanesque. Fie in the immortality of cast iron lawn deer. As for governmental censorship as distinguished from aesthetic reticence, one might be in favor of any system calculated to diminish actual crimes of violence and perversity, but the best psycholo psychologists agree that censorship has little to do with these things. So he actually says, you know, censorship might have its place, but censorship is not being used that way. Censorship is to try to stop, uh, you know, things that offend certain tastes rather than offend art. I think that's what it comes down to. So 
censorship in practice is banning what offends tastes, but you know, censorship, if done right, should just save us from bad art, which is much more harder to judge. I don't know who you, you're going to have philosopher kings judge what the good art is. Um, so he gets a little bit here about Victorian literature as well. Um, and he says their problem is they attempt to portray life through art. Um, which I don't know why that's a bad thing. It's just something he said here. Um, but mostly he talks about censorship. He all, he kind of concludes here though, that, that life is boring and lit in literature allows him to escape, uh, from kind of the boringness of life. And if that's the case, then why would you want any censorship at all? I guess it's just, he's so much a conservative about certain aspects of culture. It, it limits his, he it limits his liberality on some of these issues. So, I guess that's it. That's that's 20, 20 letters. So, uh, next episode. So we're we're get, coming to the end. We got three more episodes to finish up with the third volume of the select letters. Uh, the next ones will cover January through June, nineteen thirty-one. Um. We hear we got letters from, to a lot of different people. We got a Robert E. Howard letter, five to Wilford Blanche Tallman, um, one to Long, two more to Morton. Uh, we also get a letter to George Henry George Weiss, William Lumley, who we haven't heard from yet in this series, anyways. Um, but a lot of people are represented. Yeah, ten different people are written to in the next set of twenty letters. So um, it'll be, well, we'll see how it goes. So um, I haven't started taking notes for those letters quite yet. So anyways, that's going to be it for now. Um, especially, I guess, the highlight might be those two Morton letters because they do, we see Lovecraft as some of the, almost the ugliest we've seen him uh, since I picked up this third volume. You know, the second volume, we're getting used to it because there's so much ranting about New York City. But he's kind of toned some of that stuff down in many of these letters. And we actually see him a little bit more liberal in many of his attitudes towards things. And he even talks about how he's calming down in some of his perspectives. But in those letters to Morton, something Morton wrote maybe brought it out of him. But he really uh, yeah, says some of his more, says so, so some of the things he's, Lovecraft is, is sometimes, uh, well, often known for these days. And and all the conversations we're having about Lovecraft's racism. It's it's for letters like that, that that give him this reputation, I think. At least in part. I don't know how many people read the letters, though, but... I guess a lot of people who comment on Lovecraft don't even read that much Lovecraft, unfortunately. But um, there it is. So I, I do think looking at those two letters in particular are worthwhile. Um, the other ones, there's some good stuff here too, but and, and with some of the other correspondence, but those two are the highlight. So uh, we'll see where this takes us in the next series. I do want to say, like, it's, it's. I, I just break these up into twenty letters, but the next set of letters is long. It's, I think it's a hundred pages. So, um, so I think there's a lot of long letters there. I'll, I'll try to sum them up as best I can, but we'll see how it goes. So, anyways, as always, thanks for listening. Uh, contact me if you need to. You can find me on the Twitter. Find me, uh, send me an email, whatever. Um, but I'll see you soon with uh, the next chunk of, of the select letters of, of H.P. Lovecraft. Please don't go.
מה? 